Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, October 4th, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm a huge movie buff. Any other movie fans out there? There you go. All right. Uh, I now present to you my top five movie sequels of all time. Now, this isn't like any scientific uh, survey. This is just the ones that I like the best, a sequel. So something that came after the first movie. It could be the second, the third, or the fourth. I begin with number five, Back to the Future Part Two. It premiered in 1989, five years after the original Back to the Future film. Part two showed us what life would be like far, far, far in the future. October 21st, 2015, to be exact. That's right. So in just a few weeks, we will have cars that fly through the air. We will have hoverboards instead of skateboards. We will have movies shown in 3D. Oh, that one actually already happened, didn't it? And according to Back to the Future, in 2015, the Cubs will win the World Series. Now, just so you know, they actually made the playoffs this year. They have a one-game plan with the Pirates. So if they happen to fulfill the prophecy of Back to the Future, Don Morris and his family will be very sad because they're Pirates fans. My fourth favorite sequel is Aliens. Now, the original movie, Alien, came out in 1979. I was too young to see an R-rated movie. Seven years later, I had just graduated from high school. I saw the sequel with my buddy John Ames. The movie takes place 57 years after the original Alien film ended, and it reprises Sigourney Weaver's role as Ellen Ripley. Now, all you really need to know about this film is that Well, it takes place in outer space, and it deals with aliens. That's pretty much the summary of the film. Super scary. Not in like a a horror movie kind of thing, but in like a psychological tense kind of way. And by the way, Sigourney Weaver was nominated for an Academy Award. This was the first time a woman was nominated in an action film. Ah, there you go. Number three, The Godfather Part Two. In 1972, Marlon Brando brought the character of Vito Corleone to life, the crime boss syndicate of New York City, and he had trouble, uh, he tried passing the family business on to his reluctant son, Michael, played by Al Pacino. Well, in 1974, The Godfather Part II was released, uh, tracing uh, the earlier days of Vito's reign, and, and Michael's also then later with Michael's expanding the territory, the empire, in the 1950s. This was the first sequel to ever win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Hmm. I was a seven-year-old when the movie uh, debuted, so, yeah, my parents didn't let me go see it. Uh, It was many years later that I discovered the Godfather series and uh, found out what an amazing uh, cinematic uh, series that it actually was. Number two for me, Rocky II. Now... Let me just give you a little backstory to this, right? Rocky premiered in December of 1976, Rocky won. That summer, prior to that, the Summer Olympics were in Montreal, Quebec. 
and U.S. won th- at least three gold medals. I remember Michael and Leon Spinks won gold medal, and Sugar Ray Leonard won a gold medal. So I was so inspired watching the Olympic boxers doing well. When Rocky came out, I was super excited. Three years later, I was a mature 12-year-old ready for the rematch of the century, Rocky Balboa versus Apollo Creed. And in the annals of movie making, you won't find Rocky II high on the list of many people's favorite films, but I loved it. And my number one sequel of all time is The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars Episode Five. Now, I still remember seeing the original Star Wars movie. My Aunt Sherry uh, took me, just she and me, to go see the original Star Wars in Phoenix. And I remember riding home in the back seat. This was, you didn't have to wear seat belts back then, right? So you've got the driver's side, the passenger side. I sat in the middle and I flew my X-Wing home. Every turn we're making, right? I'm going through this. Well, when this series came out, I, it was 1980. I was in sixth grade. I was ready for Hoth and Dagobah and meeting Yoda for the first time. And for many Star Wars fans, Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, uh, is one of their favorite, favorite of the, of the six films. And, by the way, Episode Seven comes out this December. So if you want to go see it opening night with me, we'll get a group together and we'll go do that. Now... Speaking of sequels, uh, some people believe that the New Testament is like the Empire Strikes Back of the Bible, right? It's the sequel to the original, way better than the first one. I kind of disagree. I think both are necessary. You have to have the Old Testament to know where the New Testament is going. You have to have Star Wars in order to get to the Empire Strikes Back, in order to get to Return of the Jedi. Not so sure about episodes one, two, and three. They weren't quite up there, but it's still part of the Star Wars uh, universe, right? So you have to know both. You can't just stick with one. So welcome to the third week in our ongoing series called The Grand Sweep, Rediscovering the Bible. If you're uh, just joining us, we've been trying to take a step back and look at the big picture of the Bible. Uh, What's the storyline? What is the Bible trying to say as a whole? And we begin with the understanding that the Bible is really a record of God's relationship with humankind. It's a love story about how much God loves us and how we just keep messing up and not getting what God wants us to know and do and be. And so today we're ready to make the jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, towards the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people had just returned from captivity in Babylon and Persia. They had rebuilt Jerusalem, the city, and the temple that had been destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. However, 400 years passed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. 400 years. During that time, the great Roman Empire had come and taken over uh, the Holy Land. The Romans were in charge and the Jewish people had to undergo quite a bit of hardship. Now, there is record of this time, these 400 years gap. It's known as the Apocrypha. Some Bibles have it in it. You have to order a special Bible to have that. Our Catholic uh, brothers and sisters have the Apocrypha as part of their holy canon. Um, but we, most people aren't, aren't too familiar with it. Well, looking back at the big picture of this juncture, it, I think we can say that the Old Testament prepares us for what's coming in the New Testament. It helps us see how humankind got off the wrong track over and over again and how nothing that God did worked in bringing us back into right relationship with him. So the New Testament then tells the story of Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, his followers, 
and how they went even after he uh, died and rose again. But through it all, it's a story of God's pursuit of us with love, that God never gives up on us, no matter how many times we turn away or we go astray. Now, before we get into the specifics of the New Testament, I thought it'd be helpful for you to get a perspective on the timeline of how the books came to be. If we put Jesus' birth at the transition between B.C. and A.D., roughly zero, then his death and resurrection would be around A.D. 33. He was 33 years old. But it wasn't until the early 50s when the first New Testament books were written, and they weren't the Gospels. It was Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is the oldest of, or the earliest of the New Testament books. The Gospels, or the accounts of Jesus' life, didn't get written, the first one wasn't until 70 AD, and that's the Gospel of Mark. And then Matthew and Luke didn't get composed for another 20 years after that. So close to half a century passes between the time Jesus was alive and when they actually got written down into the forms that we know them as the Gospels. So in, the, in between time, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and then the disciples of the disciples would just pass on the stories by word of mouth. Oh, did you hear that story about Jesus and the woman at the well? Or, or did you hear about Jesus healing the blind man? And they would tell these and pass them down. By the time Mark was written in 70 AD, only the stories that were of most significance and importance to that community actually got put into writing. At the time of Jesus' ministry, there were three main groups in Judaism. The first were the Pharisees. They were the most respected group. They were very focused and intent on keeping the biblical law. In fact, one of, some of the, uh, the, the uh, rabbis over the time had said that if Israel would, for one day, if everyone would, would uphold the law, uh, the, old, the, the laws that, Moses, that God gave Moses in the Old Testament, and no one would sin or break a law for just one day, God would be pleased and would send the Messiah. So the Pharisees became sort of the gatekeepers of the law, and they wanted to make sure that everyone knew the rules and obeyed the rules so that God would bring his mercy. They got so wrapped up in the rules, though, Jesus would say they missed the heart of what was under the rules and what it meant to live in relationship with, with one another, not constantly scolding and, and, and holding people accountable and saying, ah, oh, you did this wrong. The second group were the Sadducees. They were the people in power in first century Judaism. They ruled the temple, and the temple was a very profitable enterprise, they had submitted to the authority of the Romans. The Romans allowed them to be in power, so they had to make sure that they didn't do anything that upset those that were in rule. If so, they would no longer be in power. We have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees, and then we have just the common people. The rulers called them the people of the earth. They were the fishermen, the craftsmen, the day laborers, the farmers. They had no political power. They had no economic clout, no intellectual standing, and yet... These are the people that Jesus seems drawn to. These are the people that come out in mass to follow Jesus. There's no way I can possibly summarize all of the Gospels in just a short sermon on Sunday morning. So let me begin by giving you some of what I would consider to be the key points about Jesus' ministry. If Jesus were running for president, this would be his platform. These are the things that he would be talking about as he went from town to town. One of the first things that Jesus proclaimed was that the kingdom of God was at hand. 
This was his way of saying that all of God's plans dealing with creation are coming to a climax and fruition now, here with his presence among them. The grand sweep of Scripture was moving through Jesus. Now, it's true that the people were waiting for a Messiah, but as I was sharing with the children this morning, their expectations of the chosen one of God and what the Messiah would do and be were very different from who Jesus felt God was calling him to be and the things he was to do. Second, Jesus brought good news to the poor, the outcast, and the oppressed. When he preached his first sermon, that's the passage that Katie read for us. We went back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he was there in the synagogue, and he stood up to speak, and they handed him Isaiah. He found this passage in Isaiah 61, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to set release to the prisoners. He was telling everyone that his ministry would be bringing relief to those people that society had already kicked to the curb. As you can imagine, this got the common people quite expired and excited and made them want to hear more and more about what Jesus had to say. Third, Jesus says in John's gospel that he came to bring life in all its abundance. It's not just about getting to heaven. It's not about what blessings we'll have whenever it is that God calls us home. No, Jesus said you can experience all that God intends for life here and now. He came to help us find what makes life truly meaningful. Fourth, as Jesus preached and taught about the kingdom of God, often using parables or stories, he said over and over again that if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And people were wondering, what does that mean? Find your life, you have to lose it. Well, when you give yourself away for others, when you put others' needs ahead of your own, when you seek to serve rather than to be served, Jesus said it's then that you'll find life is more fulfilling than you ever imagined when you're just focused on yourself. When you give yourself away for others, the blessings of God will come exponentially. And finally, as Jesus carried out his ministry, he found himself in sharp conflict with those in power. The religious leaders hated how the masses of people flocked to Jesus. They, they detested what they thought, especially the Pharisees, how he flaunted their laws. Every time he broke a law of the Sabbath, oh, well, he can't be the Messiah because obviously he's not keeping the, the, the rules that God gave us. They despised how the people followed Jesus so unwaveringly, and so they set out to kill him. And that's a theme that we see in the big picture of Scripture. When the kingdom of God comes, it's often met with fierce resistance. You see that with the prophets in the Old Testament. You see that with Jesus. You see that with the apostles in the early church. Even today, even today, when the kingdom of God is making inroads in the the world among us, expect there to be resistance and hostility. Now, let's move to talking about the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've been looking at J. Ellsworth Callis' book, A Hop, Skip, and a Jump Through the Bible. He says that each of these writers were prejudiced reporters. I love that. Prejudiced reporters. None of them pretend to be objective about Jesus. They all believed he was the Lord. They all wanted nothing more than to persuade their readers to believe the same. And yet at times, they're often brutally honest. Each one has a different focus on what they wanted to convey. Though similar, not all the Gospels have the same stories. Only Matthew and Luke actually tell about Jesus' birth. And we know nothing about Jesus between the age of 13 and the age of 29. But remember, these writers wrote decades after Jesus' life 
and death and resurrection. And so they were including just the stories they felt were most important to convey to their community about understanding who Jesus was. Which brings me to something also that's very important to understand. As we read each of the Gospels, above all else, the Gospels talk about Jesus' death. Or we might say death and resurrection. Dr. Callis notes that it's as if everything else in Jesus' story is primarily a prelude to his dying and to his resurrection. So why Jesus teaches and the way he chooses to live and the examples that he sets for his disciples, they all have greater power when we see it in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Luke emphasized this is quite succinctly when he says in Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that if he would lose his life, it would enable the rest of the world to find theirs. So rather than avoiding what was coming, he met it head on. He set his face. He made a resolve, and nothing that anyone else could do would deter him from going to what he knew was about to happen. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in each of the Gospels, but I want to give you a quick understanding of the focus that each one has. If you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you just to kind of flip through and follow along, that would be great. If you have your Pew Bibles open, uh, they reset the numbers in the New Testament. So the New Testament's kind of like three-fourths of the way through the Bible. And we're going to begin with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is on page 34 in the New Testament section. Now, scholars believe that Mark was probably the first gospel that was written. Not only is it the shortest of the four, but it may well have been written for a community that was facing severe persecution. You see, in 70 AD, the Romans squashed a major Jewish rebellion. There was a group called the, uh, the Zealots that were around in Jesus' time, and they believed that God wanted them to physically defeat the Romans and throw them out of the country. And so they would have these sort of uh, guerrilla warfare uh, things, and they would attack soldiers, they would attack Roman leaders, and eventually the Roman government said, enough is enough. We, in order to squelch all this, we're just going to come down hard on all of the Jewish people, and they went to the center of Jewish life, which was the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Mark's community was made up of Jewish Christians, The Romans didn't know, oh, these are Jewish people that follow Jesus. They just knew him as Jewish. And so as they persecuted the the Jewish people, also the early church as well. So many scholars think that Mark's community knew that the the heavy hand was about to come down and they're going to have to scatter and flee. But before they did, they wanted to take the stories with them. And so Mark wrote down uh, the summary of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so the very earliest copies were the ones that their community took as they spread out to flee from Roman persecution. Mark reminds his believers that following Jesus will probably lead to suffering, but don't give up because God is always with you and will never leave or abandon you, even in the midst of suffering. Matthew uh, wrote his gospel to a Christian community uh, that was just developing as an organization. Remember, this is around 90 or so A.D. If you want to flip back, uh, Matthew's on page 1 in the uh, New Testament. And even though it's it's first, uh, we we were there at the retreat last night and someone asked, why is it that Matthew is first if Mark was the first one written? Well, maybe it's because Matthew actually has the genealogy of Jesus and Jesus' birth. 
Who knows when they put the Bible together. But Matthew wanted the, his believers to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so he puts all kinds of passages from the, from the Hebrew scriptures into his writings. His community had grown up in the church. They had grown up as Jewish followers. And then they came to know Jesus and to see him as the Messiah that everyone said. A perfect example is right at the beginning, Matthew 1.1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew goes on to list the lineage from Abraham in verse 1 to David in verse 6, to King Josiah in verse 11, to his father Joseph in verse 16. And it was important because the scripture said that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Benjamin through the lineage of King David, born in a small town of Bethlehem. Later, Matthew quotes passages from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, and Malachi, just to name a few. Again, so his followers could see he was the fulfillment of everything that our fathers and mothers before us told. And yet Matthew believes not only is Jesus the fulfillment, Jesus is a new revelation that has come from God. Luke's gospel, which begins on page 56 in the New Testament, seems to have been written with a special relationship between the church and the Roman Empire. Luke has a heart for the lost, the lonely, the disinherited, the outsider. It's a gospel that talks straightforward about finances and money, and it calls its followers not to become possessed by their possessions. Luke is also the first of a two-volume collection. Did you know that? It's part one, with the book of Acts being part two. Finally, the gospel of John, which begins on page 91, is completely different in style than the other three, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Dr. Callis remarks that John's gospel is difficult to accept unless one is a believer already. Otherwise, it just sounds so crazy if you're outside the sphere of faith. You see, John likes to have Jesus meet someone, say the woman at the well or Nicodemus, and they have kind of an interaction. And then there's this long speech kind of back and forth, and John lays out the, the theological underpinnings of who Jesus is in light of this relationship. And remember, this was written, what, maybe 70, 80, 90 years after Jesus' life and death. It's not meant to be a newspaper uh, recording of everything that happened. They wanted to say, this is who we believe about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He doesn't have it at all. In fact, he goes back even farther. He starts at the very beginning of all creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now, before I end today, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in the book of Acts, which begins on page 188 in our New Testament Bibles. The author of Luke writes this. Remember, this is part two of his two-part series. Book of, Acts is part, or book of Luke is part one. Acts is part two. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Acts is the story of how the church came to be. How did we go from just 12 scared disciples to... Millions of people around the globe. 
from a ragtag group of followers that when Acts begins is really only about 120 people to a movement that encompasses thousands and spreads throughout the entire Mediterranean region and beyond. Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus. Before he goes back up to be with God, he tells his followers, I'm going to have to go. But before I go, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to send the Holy... God will send the Holy Spirit. So just wait. Just hang out here. And you'll know it when it happens. Acts chapter 2 tells the story of Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit comes. And the very people who had abandoned Jesus just a month before... When he needed it the most, when he was arrested and taken to be crucified, they fled and left, even denied that they knew him. Now these very same people are boldly standing on the corner, preaching to anyone that will hear about the amazing love and forgiveness and grace of God. It was an amazing transformation. Acts 2.41 remarks, Those who welcomed Peter's message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But as this fledging community grew and developed, it was not without its problems. Some of their leaders were targeted by the Roman government as suspected criminals. They were harassed and imprisoned, often multiple times. With community, greed also creeps in. And there's this amazing story in chapter 5 about Ananias and and Sapphira. In chapter 6, we find that the Greek-speaking Christians felt that their widows weren't being cared for like the Hebrew-speaking ones were. You know, the newer people to faith. Hey, you're not taking care of our aunties and our moms as much as you are with the others. So the early church decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to set seven men as overseers. We're going to let them deal with the day-to-day uh, sort of uh, logistics of this early church. That way the apostles, the disciples, can still preach and teach. Stephen was one of the seven men that was chosen to be a part of this overseeing team. Stephen, uh, in chapter 6 and 7, records the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He really summarizes my whole series. He does the grand sweep of the whole biblical story in chapter 6 and 7. It was an amazing sermon. It was so good that they killed him. <laughs> I'm not joking. He laid it out there, and it angered the, the Jewish not the Jewish believers, but just the Jewish people there, about, about how they had, had uh, not seen what Jesus was trying to do and then killed Jesus. They got so angry, they picked up stones to kill him. Uh, Acts 7.57 says this, They covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against Stephen. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the story now moves from the early disciples to Saul, who becomes the leading character, taking the story in a new direction. Saul was a leader in the Jewish community. He was a Pharisee, so he was all about the rules and following the rules. He was extremely zealous when it came to persecuting Christians. He would take uh, children away from their parents, wives away from their husbands. Anyone that he found to be a Christian, he would bring to jail in Jerusalem. But God decided that Saul had all the makings of a good leader of his. And so in chapter 9, we read about Saul's dramatic conversion is an encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus and how he becomes a Christian. He who was persecuting the church the most becomes one of the greatest advocates of the early church. He goes on to establish churches all over the Mediterranean region. Oh, yeah, and maybe you know him as Paul because God gave him a name change. 
the rest of the book of Acts tells about Paul's story. Dr. Callis notes that the book of Acts, 40% talks about the acts of the apostles, 60% tells about the acts of one particular apostle, the apostle Paul. I commend that book to your reading. It's an amazing story filled with espionage and intrigue, shipwrecks and snake bites and sermons, and through it all, God gets the glory. So, that's where we're going to stop for today. Next week, we'll finish the series by taking a closer look at Paul's letters to the various churches, and we'll finish with that enigmatic book known as Revelation. But I want you to continue... uh, Working with scripture journaling, if you haven't, if this morning was your first time giving it a try, I'd like you to to take a few days this week. Scripture journaling is the way of reading the Bible devotionally. It's listening for a word from God. You don't have to read the whole passage. If you find something three words into it that your heart connects to, stop and write about that. That's okay. It's not about getting through. It's about hearing a word from God. So I hope that that in the week ahead, you'll spend more time with God and and, and, and the Bible, I put on the back of your uh, bulletin five passages this week. One from each of the four Gospels and one from the book of Acts. And so I would invite you, I would challenge you to pick three days, at least three days, where you have about a half an hour or 40 minutes to sit down, grab your Bible, uh, take out a piece of paper. You can use this as a sample from, from today's to remember and just kind of go through and work with one of these passages and see what God might have to say to you. You have no idea how much it warms my heart. I've been hearing about different people around the church that have said, hey, the scripture journaling is kind of interesting. I'm starting to get the Bible in a new way. And I told you before, for me, it was the single most life-changing part of my adult spirituality. It changed my relationship with God when I started this about 12 years or so ago. God has spoken. God speaks now, and God will continue to speak into our lives if we'll take time to sit with his word and to listen. So I look forward to finishing this important series with you next weekend. Thanks be to God. Amen.